Hello, and welcome to GovGuys, a podcast brought to you by two teachers who are excited to start a new season of the podcast. I'm Mr. Crowder. And I'm Mr. Hertzler. And today we're going to talk about what is likely the most contentious aspect of government, political parties. And what are political parties? Well, political parties are an effect of the natural and inevitable formation of factions within our country. Okay, so say that again, but less nerdy. Uh, it's the reason people on C-SPAN hate each other? C-SPAN is still nerdy. Try again. Uh, okay, okay. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, it's the reason a lot of people, quote, just can't get into politics. It's the reason that all too often our elected officials act more stubborn than a sugared-up three-year-old who hasn't taken a nap. Political parties are playing a big role in dividing us as a country, and yet, do you want to know a secret? What's that? We love them anyway. I thought that hate was a strong word earlier, but love might be even more jarring. Why would people choose to want political parties? And that's the exact question George Washington asked 225 years ago. Roll intro. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, enter we the people of the United States in order to form a more perfect union. Government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. Welcome to the Gov Guys Podcast, Episode 11. What a strange Gov, or how I learned to stop worrying and love the parties. So, to really get into political parties, we must talk about the warning that was put on us by George Washington, since we we just mentioned him. Is in George Washington's farewell address, he gives us three warnings, and we're only really going to talk about one of those warnings today. And that is, we should have no political parties in this country and with this new government that we created, because he warns us that political parties won't serve the best interests of the people, but they'll serve the best interests for the party themselves. And if we're not careful, the parties will start to become more important than what the government represents. Yeah, that's right. I mean, Washington kind of sees the writing on the wall. Even in his own political administration, he saw Hamilton, his finance secretary, and his secretary of state, Thomas Jefferson, just absolutely going at it over and over again over these big political and sectional issues within the country. And he realized probably all too late that the lore of the political party was going to be too much for the people. And what he says in particular in his farewell address is this. However, political parties may now and then answer popular ends they are likely in the course of time and things to become potent engines by which cunning, ambitious, and unprincipled men will enable to subvert the power of the people and to usurp for themselves the reins of government, destroying afterwards the very engines which have lifted them to unjust dominion. So again, what Hertzler said earlier, it's that really important warning that the American people once you're introducing the concept of political parties, won't be able to step away from it. And pretty soon, you're going to be more about serving the interest of the party than you are the interest of the country. Yeah, and Washington's not the only one to warn us about political parties. James Madison also warns us a little bit about political parties, but he doesn't say political parties in his 
um, Federalist 10, but he, he, he warns us about the inevitability about, of factions. So how can factions be compared to political parties? Well, ultimately, when we're talking about Federalist 10, yeah, it's, it's James Madison writing about how the large republic that they were creating in the U.S. Constitution was going to do the best job at serving the factions within our country. And factions are essentially just divisions within the country. Like, you're going to have a bunch of people who generally agree upon some issues regarding government and its role of government or generally agree upon how people should be viewed or treated. And ultimately, those people are going to find each other in some form and fashion and ultimately lead to the creation of what is now going to be a political party today. And so people pretty much realized that the idea of factions were inevitable. But Washington warns us about how these factions are really just going to get out of control. Before we get too far ahead of ourselves, Hertzler, let's just go to, like, the term political party. What is political party? And I think the easiest way to describe a political party is basically what you were just talking about with factions. Political parties are groups of people who have like-minded interest on how they want the government or foresee policy to, to operate. As we talked about in our previous episode when we were talking about ideologies, most of the time people with similar ideologies form their own political party. So remember in our last episode, we talked about the difference between liberalism and conservatism. So, so now we're going to start looking at where those groups fall in on the American spectrum and that when it comes to um, their ideologies and how they see policymaking. So, so political parties are just groups of like-minded individuals under one banner to promote their policies. Right. And, and the number one way to promote your policies is to win elections. And so it's really important to basically think of a political party as a unit of like-minded people who are ultimately trying to work together to win elections so that they can put their agendas into action. And so when we're talking about the purposes of the political party, I think we talked about the first big idea first, this idea of collective action about how people with similar ideas, whether we were talking about the previous episode, liberal ideas versus conservative ideas, those tend to align with particular political parties. And we have to be really careful about this just while we're on that note, because the political parties have changed over time. And what you may recognize as a liberal viewpoint today might be labeling an entirely different party depending on when you're looking back in history. So just on the note of political parties, we do have to be careful when we're thinking about them because how we view them may be entirely different based on our historical context. Yeah, there are five different real key eras of American history um, when it comes to the different political parties that we talk about. We will talk about some of the major shifts in this episode. And the other major purpose of a political party is going to be policymaking. And Hertzler, get into the nuts and bolts. What is policymaking? So policymaking, once you get elected, is what a political party's main objective is. And that's to create legislation if you're in the Congress. If you're the president, you are trying to impose certain rules on how laws operate, or if you're using the executive order, you're actually making your own laws, but you're just trying to put your party's ideas into practice 
and and to get those ideas uh, to operate in the government, right? If you have control of the government, you're going to want to promote your party's ideas. You're not getting elected just to sit there. You're you're trying to represent your party and the people that support your party and and do what they want you to do as far as creating laws and bills. Absolutely. I mean, policymaking is all about putting your stamp on history. And ultimately, you don't do that without success in the ballot box. So you are going to have these political parties oftentimes competing really hard and oftentimes in a really kind of ugly way, the good old mudslinging, to try to get enough votes to push them over the top uh, so they're able to be the ones who are in the driver's seat when it comes to policymaking. If you don't hate your opponent, you're not trying. Right. When we're talking about like what a party does, what is the function of a political party? I think we need to start at the most basic level when we're talking about like recruitment. You are trying to get people to join your party. And theoretically, out of the people who are joining your party, you're trying to make some of them into future candidates. You are trying to think of like, which type of people are possibly well-spoken, are really loyal to the ideas for which we stand for. We're trying to make sure that those are the people that are going to represent the party in local and state and, and federal offices. Yeah, it's not just one. You're just not running presidents as a political party. You you have to be well-established. You see, You've seen the well-established parties last for a long time. Right. There's this old saying that all politics is local, and I think that's true to a large degree. And and one of the things we're going to talk about in this episode is all about grassroots movements and how ultimately the parties that are most successful long term are the ones that have a a vision, not just nationally, but locally, because if if you don't get your hands kind of dirty on the local level, you're never going to make an impact on everyday people's lives. And then they're not going to think about you as as important, possibly, at the federal level either. Right. And then with recruitment, the, the next step, and you talked about it, running new candidates is elections. Um, once you start building this, this base, you, you need to get all of these people on the same page to help your politicians win elections. And it's important to get... those voices out, whether you're going out and holding vote drives or just trying to get people to register to vote so that you can get uh, more votes for your people. I would say elections is probably, after recruitment, would be one of the most important duties that a political party must achieve to be successful, is get their politicians in office. And Hertzler, I know you probably don't know off the top of your head, but let me just throw a random Take a random guess. Uh, If you were to try to put a number on the amount of money that you need to spend to try to get people out to vote, how much did we spend in 2020? Just take a wild guess. Get people out to vote? Yeah, you're talking talking the the entire campaign ads. Yeah, everything. Campaign ads, door-to-door flyers, people knocking, recruitment offices. We're probably over, well over either a half a million to a million dollars. Nowhere close. We're actually at $14.4 billion spent in the 2020 election. That's pricey. So, you know, 
elections involve more than just putting shiny ads out there uh, and trying to make sure that people watch them. It is organizing voting drives. It's getting out there and making sure that people register to vote because if you don't have people registered, they're not going to be voting for you anyway. Political fundraising. fundraising. Yeah. Right. And, and then conventions. I do want you to talk about conventions real quick, because I think that conventions are obviously important from a fundraising perspective. But I think for many candidates, it's really like their first chance to really kind of be out there in prime time. Yeah, both political parties, the, the major political parties that we have in America, they both have national conventions. And this is it's basically just like a get together of of the political parties where they come together um, and they try to get on the same page. So it happens every four years. So when we elect a president um, and they come together to discuss policy issues, they come to discuss uh, who is going to be the best candidate moving forward. There's tons of speakers coming out to, to get their voices heard. One example I like to throw out there is in 2004, you had possibly one of the most important speeches given by a young up-and-coming senator uh, from Chicago, and that being Barack Obama. And if it wasn't for the Democratic Convention, he may not have gotten his name out there. So, so again, conventions are great for getting your voices out there, getting your party in line, and just presenting who is going to be the face of the party. Yeah, and part of that too is um, it's advertising. It It is literally a big party. Like if we're talking about political parties, this is actually it. Like uh, we've talked about before the funny 1992 or I think maybe 92 or 96, Hillary Clinton doing the Macarena. You know, the, the it's actual- It's Comic-Con right. for, for politicians. It, it's Comic-Con for political nerds. Uh, it absolutely <laughs> is. But, you know, the the- the best underrated part of the political conventions is seeing everyone dance to modern music. And it's pretty cringe as the kids would say, uh, no cap, but uh, no, it's, it's great. But with that being said, it is a big spectacle. People tune in and watch them, even if they only have a mild interest in the conventions, because you do get some idea as to what the candidates stand for. You do get some perspective as to, the candidate's background, their life story, because that's, again, really a big chance to get free advertising for your political party, your political party platform, your candidates. And oftentimes, most often, you're going to have candidates get what's known as a bump following the end of these conventions. And a bump is a simply, you know, a five to 10 point, depending on how great it is, kind of a swing in the polls. Now, both political parties hold their nominating conventions kind of back to back. So more or less, they kind of, uh, you know, offsetting penalties to put it in kind of a football perspective over time. Uh, but, you know, conventions can do a lot for people who are maybe on the fence. Yeah. And like I said, one of the big important things um, that they do at these conventions is they establish positions on certain key battleground issues, right? Um, and, and that is very important to the political party. And this is where we talk about how political parties relate to those ideologies that we were talking about in the last episode. Um, as you, most of the positions that Democrats take um, on issues will, will align with liberal ideas, whereas the Republicans' positions will, will most likely uh, rely with conservative uh, viewpoints. So so it's important that they get these agendas idea because if 
For example, each election has a big issue that really establishes what can win or lose an election. So it's important to get the base to us to rally around a certain idea when it comes to that party's position on the issue. And when we're talking more about like what do political parties do, I think it's also important that besides elections, uh, political parties, once they are in Congress or in the White House, have a role to play as well. And one of those first things is basically, you know, kind of this idea of party responsibility, this idea of implementing and securing support and influence through appointments of loyalists. And one of the areas where we might see this materialize is in places like Congress. We are just talking this week in class about committees and how committees are basically your most foundational location for where lawmaking takes place. But if you want to be influential in a committee, one of the best things you're going to do for yourself is be a loyal party member. Because if you want to take part in the veterans affairs, it's going to help you very much to be somebody who toes the party line, so to speak, and somebody who's been there for a long time. And if you have both those things going for you, you get your first choice of committee assignments. And basically they work down this idea of seniority uh, and, and loyalty uh, to place you into committees more often than not. So being a party loyalist is something that can pay off for your own personal interest. Or, you know, you even think about an important committee like the Senate Judiciary Committee, you have a direct role in questioning Supreme Court justice appointments. You know, before they can sit on the Supreme Court, they have to go through the Senate Judiciary Committee and be oftentimes grilled to try to give convincing enough answers that they can be presented to the full Senate or or not. And lastly, the other part of this is oftentimes you will find yourself in party that you are not in the majority. Part of what works really well in the majority is you get to make policymaking decisions, things like that. But when you're not in the majority, you can be a thorn in the side of the majority party, constantly throwing out the filibuster if you're in the Senate which oftentimes keeps the majority party from putting policy into place. Or if you're in the House, one of the things we're seeing now is, uh, you know, this time in history, we're kind of dating ourselves a little bit, is right now there's no Speaker of the House. Um, the Republicans are a little bit of at odds with each other regarding who the next Speaker is going to be. But the Democrats are very solid for voting for their majority leader, I guess their minority leader every time, Hakeem Jeffries, for Speaker of the House. He's routinely getting every single Democratic vote, which makes them look very solid as a party, even though they are in the minority. Yeah, they can't win the speakership. They need votes to swing their way, but they're not allowing the Republicans to get whoever they want. Absolutely. So that idea is kind of called like loyal opposition. Like at the end of the day, you're still in government, but you are going to oftentimes be the thorn in the side of the majority party uh, if they're trying to get their thing done. And I think this is. And that's you know, just not Congress either. Right. Um, you can you you can do the same thing as the president. Um, if 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 you have a Republican Congress and a Democratic president, the president's going to veto right. most of the time um, the, the legislation that gets passed through. And if they don't have a two-third majority, nothing's going to get done. Right. And this is this is one of those things that turn people off to politics, I think. It's this idea known as gridlock, that if you have what's known as divided government, where e even one chamber of Congress can be controlled by a different party, things slow down significantly. 
And a lot of the founders did see the Senate in particular as an area where you need to be slow and deliberative with laws. But especially if they're not, you know, the House and the Senate being controlled by one party, things get really slow because the number of bills that they agree on to make into laws gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And then you might have the difficulty of getting it past a president that may or may not agree with your policies either. Yeah. And even talking about, you know, committees in, in the class this week, we talked about how the House and the Senate have to have the same wording on a bill. That could just throw things off. Right. Absolutely. Like if you had a conference committee come together to try to reconcile the bills, you know, let's say the senators really can't give up a certain amount of spending that the House members would never agree to, you know, your bill is dead. So, you know, a divided government due to separation of parties can be a real area where government and decisions really slow down for better or for worse. Uh, and and I do think maybe for worse, this is where a lot of people really get turned off to government because more often than not, they're like, why aren't they doing anything? And all they see is kind of the rivalry, the disagreement playing out on the news. Bickering. Yeah. All right. Now we're going to shift gears a little bit. We're going to talk about the three phases that political parties play um, in society. So the first one we're going to talk about is the party and the electorate. And this, if we take it, if we look at this like a triangle, uh, you know, like a like a society triangle, this is the base, and it's the biggest right. part of the political party. Um, this is everybody in the political party, down to just someone who casts a vote, right? right. the 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 party in the electorate is is the most important group because this is where everybody is located. These are the people doing the voting drives. These are the people doing the fundraising. This is the people uh, that are going door to door, knocking, making sure that that you're voting for the correct person. But it's a, but but it, but it's also just the people who go and routinely vote, right? You know, if you if they can routinely count on you to go cast a ballot for their candidate, that's maybe a little less fundraising that they have to do for your particular vote, and they can focus on different people, different areas. Uh, so anyone from the candidate to the people who run the kind of voting drives, every single member is important to the success or failure of that party. Yeah. These, th if this was military terms, they'd be the people with the boots on the ground. Absolutely. Uh, the next step up is the party in government. Crowder, what is the party in government? So the party in government is the face of the party, more or less. These are the people who are elected and serve in Congress in the White House. These are the people you see on go on the news and, and talk and give speeches and, and things like that. They're obviously important too, because I would argue that in the United States, we've become even more based on this kind of idea of candidate-based campaigns, where I, I generally agree with what they stand for, but I just don't like them. You see that often with, with particular candidates or, or vice versa, like yeah, maybe he doesn't represent or he or she doesn't represent everything I stand for, but I like the guy or I like this person, so I'm going to vote for them. And that happens or, or, quite a bit. I'm going to vote for this guy because he's not the other person. Right. And that's something we're going to talk about a little bit later in this episode is, you know, perhaps the, the downfall of the two-party system that we have in our country. But party and government is essentially that most 
maybe not basic level of things, but that mid-level uh, party importance where ultimately, you know, your success depends on your candidates, who's running for office, who's representing you in Congress, in the White House. Are they doing a good job? Are you going to re-vote for them? Yeah, these, these are all important. And then at the very top, we have party organization. And we talked a little bit about organization, but why would you say it's at the top of this triangle? Why is organization so important? Because the organization is is everything. If we can't get people to do these voting drives, to go door to door, the party falls apart. Um, the party organization is the glue that holds the party together. Um, and they start at... The, the, the grassroots that we, we mentioned earlier, political parties just don't happen overnight. Most of the time, most political parties start with an idea at a, at a local or, or, or lower level, and it just explodes at that point. They, they get their ideas out there. People all over the country start supporting these ideas. They start in their town. Another town over here gets these ideas, and it just starts enveloping over time and, and, and starts growing. Yeah, and and the other part of this is organization is important because it helps you win elections. Like if you have a million dollars that you're going to need to spend on an advertising campaign, do you want to focus on this district where it's really tight? Or are you going to spend money in a district where you probably are either really losing really badly or really winning really well? Like people who organize the party have to pay attention to those types of things because otherwise you're spending money uh, you know, I guess we could always argue that some level of political spending with how ridiculous it's gotten is is wasteful. But, you know, you really are throwing money away if you're spending money advertising in a district where you're either, you know, up by 20 points or down by 20 points. You have to have organizers that focus on running, appearing, uh, doing campaigns in the right places, too. And so when we're talking about parties. I do want to just take a quick second and kind of look at this in a more macro way, kind of zoomed out. We have a two-party system in the United States, which means generally we have two major parties that could win any given election. But not every country in the world is like that. Yeah, multi-party systems are mostly systems that, that as the name suggests, they have multiple parties. Um, and we would consider their election to be kind of weird because th they have proportional representation instead of winner-takes-all representation, where you might get the, – the leading party might get 35%, but that is their majority. Like they got 35% and nobody else has over 35%. But the problem with this is you have to make deals and you have to – to mesh with the other political parties um, in this system to secure a majority to, to get things passed. So majority parties are really good at checking and balancing on the parties themselves. Like you can't just get, get things passed like you can't hear and when you have a majority. They tend to be very unstable as well, um, and, and they tend to be very volatile. Um, when it comes to who's in charge and which political party has control of the system at any one time. Yeah, I mean, you have to form what's known as a coalition. So like your party might get 35% of the vote, but you need a majority in order to actually rule. And oftentimes you have someone like a prime minister or maybe a president, and they don't get 
elected out of the 35%, you have to put together a coalition of party supporters that ultimately are going to get you over that 50% hurdle uh, so that you can have somebody usually from your party to represent you. Um, you know, there are a whole bunch of countries in the world that do this. One that comes to mind just off the top of my head is Israel that have multiple parties. And some of them might only get 5% of the vote, but that 5% might be really crucial to getting some of those major parties over the line so that they can have their particular uh, person chosen for prime minister. Yeah, and they have a lot of splinter parties off the major parties. And that's your coalition. They might have the same ideas but different aspects change why somebody would vote for the major party versus the splinter party but they all have kind of a basis of the same ideas right and the other part of the multi-party system is that probably uh, a lot of those smaller parties really have very precise viewpoints on things versus in a two-party system what we have in the united states is you know uh, there are a lot of people who are members of the Democratic Party that don't like a lot of what they stand for or vice versa with the Republican Party because it's like the option based on the two choices they have. Yeah, a lot of single-issued parties in a multi-party system. For sure. Uh, and, and so then, of course, we have the two-party system. We've talked about that a little bit. So that's what we have in the United States. We We do have multiple parties. I do want to make sure that we know that. But if we're talking about especially federal elections, virtually none of those independent or third parties are really going to stand a major shot right now anyway in winning an election. So oftentimes, I think you really do have, as a result of the two-party system, this kind of hold your nose and vote for the the lesser of two evil options. Right. Uh, I think in, in America, we only have, what, three senators that come from an independent party, two or three senators. The three so senators are Angus King, Bernie Sanders, and Kirsten Sinema, who all uh, caucus with the Democrats. But yeah, we have three independents in the Senate and none in the House. Right. Yeah, and the, the, the hold your nose and vote for the other guys is not a very healthy system because you're not voting on policy. You're not voting on what's going to make the country better. You're just saying, well, I'm going to pick this person because – Thankfully, they're not the other person. There, there's no good, and I wouldn't say there's not any good second options. It's just we don't hear about the second options all that much. Yeah, I mean, I, I think if we're just, we're going to bring it up. The 2016 election is a really good example of an election which had uh, the, the candidates from both political parties were generally not well liked in terms of polls, in terms of likability across the board. Obviously, there are some diehard people who love both the candidates a lot. But if we're just talking about your casual voter, there was a lot of dislike in the polls for both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. But when it came to Election Day, people had to choose to either not vote, which many chose not to vote at all. Uh, or the other option is you vote for what you think is sort of that quote unquote lesser of two evils where, you know, I agree with let's 70% of this person's stance, though I don't really like them, but this is the option. If if I am a person who supports a particular, maybe a single issue, and that candidate stands for an issue and the other one doesn't, that's that's your option especially when you talk about voting in swing states and things like that, where the vote might be separated by, you know, we're talking Florida in the year 2000, it was 530 votes or something like that. Georgia every, in the last election. Right. You know, it's one of those things like every vote does matter is often said. 
And oftentimes that's true if we're talking about those really tight states. We'll talk about the Electoral College later. But when you have those two-party systems, uh, oftentimes it does make you kind of get forced to choose the candidate who either has the best shot of winning that generally aligns with their values, or you vote for a fringe candidate that probably has no shot of winning anything. Right. We'll hang on to that before we get too far ahead of ourselves. And lastly, Hertzler, let's just go ahead and talk about it. What's the single party system? The single party system is the, the easiest political system to understand because as it suggests, there is one party most of the time when we're talking about a one-party system, we are talking about countries with a dictatorship or a regime that is in charge where that's the only party that you vote for. And they, the funny thing is they have elections. They win 100% of the time. But there's maybe one name on the, the ballot, and it's the person you're supposed to vote for. North Korea is a prime example of, of the one-party system. You have the, the North Korean regime that are in charge. Um, you go cast a vote on election day, but you're always voting for the same person. Right. I mean, it's uh, it's it's very it's very easy for the people who are in charge of a totalitarian system to say, "Look, I have broad support among my electorate, but like you're you are the option." And there might you know, be another name on there. That's a sacrificial lamb, though. Like right. Especially in some of the totalitarian systems, you see a lot of if there is any political dissidents, they're oftentimes like arrested or exiled or uh, killed. Uh, and then basically, oh, yeah, Vladimir Putin is the only option. But, you know, we talked about just back to the two party system. We talked about when you have divided government that can oftentimes lead to gridlock, which, you know, some founders might say is necessary. Like this is a good thing. Because ultimately gridlock means that the majority is not stuffing out the minority, you know, in terms of the viewpoints. Uh, but a lot of people are also going to look at it and just get really frustrated. Like, why are they only squabbling amongst themselves? They can't get anything done. It's it's kind of. It's a double-edged sword. It's like, a double-edged it's, sword. It's, yeah. It protects society, but it also will hurt when we we need some kind of resolution or some kind of bill passed um, that we're waiting for, AKA we're still waiting on a budget um, for those that are keeping track of current events. The, the budget must be approved on October 1st and they missed that deadline. And I th we're waiting to what the 17th now, no November 17th is when the short term budget deal ends. So Theoretically, we could be headed toward a government shutdown. We we're headed toward a government shutdown in early October until the short-term deal was cast. But, you know, when you have a lot of gridlock in Washington, especially right now with the fact that the House can't do anything without a speaker, this threat of shutdown gets even worse, which if you look at things historically, there was really never any government shutdown until I think the first one in at least a long time was in 1994. Okay, well, that was when Newt Gingrich got voted into power uh, in the first part of the Clinton administration, and he became the Speaker of the House, and they had a kind of a standoff on the budget and ended up shutting down the government. But, you know, if I just look back in the last 20 years, it's more, more frequent. Uh, so I think that the gridlock is really spilling over to a lot of everyday issues. It's not just that the parties can't agree. It's disagreeing to the point that government oftentimes doesn't operate 
Yeah, if we can't get our way, we're just not going to do anything about it. If I can't get my way, we're just going to take my ball and go home. It's very similar to the first speaker vote where you had a coalition of 20 Republicans who did not want McCarthy and they voted against it. What is it? We we had like 12, 12 speaker votes until they finally Fif- got it passed. 15. It was like a bo- old school boxing match. It went 15 rounds. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, Kevin McCarthy emerged early on as a, I guess we could say fairly weak speaker of the house because of all the restraints that were put on his power as speaker by the small faction of Republicans within his own party. But again, this is maybe perhaps a a real multi-party system trying to work in the footprint of a two-party system that we have in our country. Right. You have competing interests, even within the political parties, like there is a more liberal wing of the Democratic Party and a more moderate wing and, and vice versa. In the Republican Party, there's a more conservative wing and a less conservative wing. Uh, but within the two-party system mold that we have, uh, oftentimes that can lead to gridlock even between the same political party. As we get away from the squabbling that can happen even within the own political parties, I think it's important to point out how the parties are moving farther and farther apart. And this concept is known as political polarization. There's less agreement between the Democrats and the Republicans than there used to be. There are fewer moderate members than there used to be. And before we get into the impact of this, why is this happening? Well, I think we talked a little bit about it in my class the other day when we were we're, we're talking just about the cohesion of Congress. Um, The fact that Congress people, they don't really interact with each other outside of their everyday job. Um, back in the day, Congress, congressmen and women used to hang out after the, the day of, of legislating. Uh, uh, they used to go out to dinner, um, used to hang out, go to bars, just, just be friends with one another. And, you know, you can hate them from eight to five, but at five o'clock, you're just regular human beings who can discuss things in, in a fairly less tempered manner. And with the ease of getting around the country, congressmen and women going back home every evening, um, just coming in for work, you you see less cohesion with the political parties. Yeah, I mean, I'd agree with that, especially when we talk about, uh, you know, the, the Internet. And I don't want to blame everything on the Internet, but I think it's much easier to put people on blast on the Internet almost anonymously or entirely anonymously because of the fact that essentially – You can just send a quick tweet and criticize somebody and their policy positions, which, again, might be perfectly fair. But oftentimes, especially on the Internet, things get to the level where it's almost dehumanizing. You are making it like a sports team where theoretically in the United States, we're all supposed to be on one team. But we have a lot of infighting uh, within the team itself. And so it's hard to get things off the ground. It's hard to even talk to each other when we don't make efforts to understand each other as people. And as Hertzler pointed out, the ease of getting around the country, this would surprise a lot of people, but the congressional schedule goes from Tuesday to Thursday in most circumstances. They're traveling on Friday, they're traveling on Monday, and they're they're in their districts on the weekends for the most part. Uh, And so you don't get a lot of that interaction that very important team building of going out to dinner and just talking as human beings uh, versus just kind of 
staying in your side of, of the, the barracks. I'd heard that like in the old, not old days, but like early two thousands, a lot of, a lot of legislative work was done after hours, negotiations and discussion on bills. It's, Hertz, it's crazy. Hertzer's talking about the the 2000s like our kids do. It makes me just hate, right. mys- hate myself a little bit. Like, was, do you remember back in the, the late 1900s? I'm like, oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Um, right. It, it, it hurts. They're like, oh, yeah, like this really old movie, Empire Strikes Back. And I'm like, oh, man. But that's okay. Um, so we're talking about political polarization. And we talked about this idea of just people not really being um, cohesive with each other. And I think that's a really important idea. Um, but I think another thing that really goes along with this is gerrymandering. Um, and we've talked about gerrymandering a little bit. I'm sure we'll talk about it again, but it's been abundantly clear time and time again, that partisan gerrymanders, that's gerrymandering, redrawing districts in a way that favor one political party over another is something that the Supreme Court is either going to support or not take on. And so these state legislatures, every 10 years when they redistrict, make it less and less and less competitive for most districts. Yeah, and when you make it less competitive, you have people that don't want to get involved in voting. If if, if I'm never going to make a difference, if my vote's never going to matter, why should I participate in politics? Yeah, I mean, we tend to think of a district as competitive if it's within about five polling points. But most districts are drawn in such a precise way that districts are 10, 15, 20, 40, 50 points off. You know, there's a snowball's chance in hell that a candidate of the other party is going to get elected into office in some of these districts because members of the state legislatures on both sides draw the districts in such a way that disproportionately favor their party. Let's take North Carolina, for example. Hertzler, I'll leave this one up to you. Talk about North Carolina and why it's a poster child for redistricting and especially gerrymandering. Well, first of all, we've had, you know, one of the most important Supreme Court cases dealing with gerrymandering argued in the state with Shaw versus Reno. Um, if you want to check that out, go back and look at our gerrymandering episode when we talked about congressional districts. Um, but North Carolina, if you look at the statistics, is pretty 50-50 when it comes to Republican and Democratic support. But if you look at the way that our districts are drawn, um, it heavily favors the Republicans. When you look at the 14 congressional districts we have, yeah, Hertzler's right. Like it might be 10-4 at best, uh, but you know there, there are new maps that just came out this week, which are uh, theoretically something like a, a 12-2 split which disproportionately favors Republicans. Obviously, gerrymandering is something we've talked about in previous episodes, but what is the impact on political parties here, Hertzler? How does this make it more polarized? The fact that, again, you have a system where you're not being represented if you're you're in the minority party. Um, Nothing for your state is going to get achieved that's going to impact you. Um, and it is, it is going to be discouraging and you're going to see a lot of people not want to vote and it's almost, you're going to hate the other side because that's all you hear is their messaging. You see their bills being passed. Everything that you support is thrown to the wayside. Yeah. And I think another negative of safe seats. So safe seats are those that are going to win. Like, you know, 
you're up 15, no matter 20 what, points. Yeah. Right. Unless you decide to retire or if you die, like you're, you're not going to lose your seat. You know, safe seats lead to more polarization because you don't have to be moderate. You don't have to appeal to the middle. You have to appeal to the base. And the base of each party tends to be more, I don't want to say extreme, but for lack of a better way of saying, they tend to be less moderate than the overall electorate. Uh, and so you only really need to appeal to the base or maybe even the most extreme people who are going to vote in off years uh, to choose you uh, in your primaries. That's the other way that you can lose your seat is someone else who has more radical ideas comes in and um, takes the base away from you. Right. So you might have somebody who is a, a Republican and they're running in their political primary and some voters may not see them as, you know, like more recent things. Like they may not be as supportive of Donald Trump as the base or the people who go out to vote in primaries may want you to be. So as a result, they're going to run a different candidate against you that tends to be more supportive of Donald Trump, perhaps. And all of a sudden they become the party's nomination and their candidate. And then ultimately you lose your seat because it's a safe seat for your party, but you get beat by somebody who is more extreme more often than not to the people who vote in the primaries. Yeah, and that kind of leads into the next idea of why we're of party polarization is the single issue groups, interest groups, um, people who won't vote for a particular candidate because of a specific issue. Um, if you're a Republican who thinks there should be um, a more more restrictions on owning a firearm, you're probably going to get primary because uh, you know that is not one of the the core beliefs of the Republican Party at at the present time. Right. I mean, the single issue interest groups can play a big role because I, you know, I think one of the most obvious ones to talk about is abortion. Abortion is a very divisive issue and decisive issue in this country in terms of turning out the vote. You know, what is your choice of are you pro choice? Are you uh, pro life? That makes a huge difference in whether or not people show up to vote. And oftentimes, if we talk about interest groups specifically, where your money and support are going to come from. Yeah, yeah, you you need that that money from the interest groups, as Crowder pointed out earlier in this, how expensive elections are. Right. And, and before we get to the cost of elections, uh, this idea of media-driven ideological conflicts, you know, uh, we've talked about the media a little bit. We'll continue to talk about the media more in this series. But the media really likes to depict elections as a horse race. Who's up? Who's down? Who's winning? Who's losing? Right? They don't tend to look at issues, but they tend to look at like, oh, this is good for the Democrats or this is good for the Republicans. And so the, the media, in an attempt to try to maybe make politics less nuanced and more maybe simple to understand – oftentimes plays a role in trying to kind of create this tribal environment between, you know, one side and the other, quote unquote. But also I, I disagree that they do talk about um, issues, but it's the way they talk about the issues and how they will focus on the issues that benefit the party they support. Because we have talked about it on here several times that you can watch a news program and in about 10 minutes, 
of coverage, you probably can guess which party they affiliate themselves with. And I feel like someone who will watch one news station over another will only hear one side. That causes a really big divide because you don't care what the other party thinks because you're already being told what the other party thinks. And that'll cause individuals to become very polarized when it comes to how they think about issues. Yeah. I mean, do you watch Fox news or do you watch MSNBC? Both those news channels have been critiqued as delivering news exclusively through the lens. That's going to benefit one uh, ideology or the other, let alone one political party or the other. And ultimately as a result of that, a lot of people don't even get exposed to more moderate viewpoints or, you know, heaven forbid, the other side of a viewpoint. Lastly, Hertzler, we talked a little bit about the cost of the 2020 election. You know, nearly $14.5 billion were spent nationwide on electioneering, which is just a crazy amount of money. When, when did political spending get to be so wild in this country? Well, I really think it 2000s, early 90s, you start to see these these organizations come together and really start funding these campaigns. We've talked about super PACs and just PACs, political action committees before, and their role of financing these campaigns for people. The problem is there's not a whole lot of restrictions that PACs have to deal with. And it's almost, and, and there's a really funny um, Stephen Colbert, John Stewart, where they basically call super PAC money, unlimited money. Like, like you're basically given a blank check to fund your election. As long as you support what these super PACs or these PACs um, really want you to support. Yeah. And as soon as you're kind of beholden to the, the ideas of these PACs, because, you know, they've given you a lot of money, it really makes you embolden a certain viewpoint. And, you know, this, the influence of money in politics is is obviously a time-honored tradition, for better or for worse. But I think it's fair to say that as interest groups get involved and, and really wealthy donors get involved, you become more beholden to a certain viewpoint, which over time have become less and less moderate and more and more radical to either the left or to the right. Yeah, you have to play ball. It's almost like your alter ego when you start getting paid by these interest groups. Right, which just further leads to more and more polarization, this idea that there's basically no one in the middle anymore and everyone's to the extremes, which I think it's fair to say is away from where a a fair number of people and voters are. That kind of independent voter who might be pretty moderate is having a harder and harder time perhaps trying to figure out which political party to support because oftentimes as a result of primaries, gerrymandering, uh, all these issues we've discussed, it becomes harder and harder to find candidates. Candidate, yeah. The effects of polarization. We obviously talked about gridlock and how big a deal that is. It keeps Congress from being effective. It keeps government oftentimes from being effective and getting quick, decisive things done. And some would argue that's actually for the better. But for many people, they're going to see gridlock as just kind of this back and forth bickering and government, quote unquote, not doing anything. So the other part of this polarization is that you have a lack of compromise. And what does that look like? 
Well, I'm going to throw an example from our state government. Um, if if you've you've paid attention to North Carolina news, we we also had a, a tough time getting a, a budget passed. Um, with one of the big issues being um, off reservation gambling. People who analyze political science thought, you know, if the Republicans compromise with the Democrats on, you know, certain parts of the budget, maybe the Democrats would support this. But many Republicans said, no, we're not to the point that we want to compromise. So we had to hold out on having a budget because a republic the republicans would not compromise or or give any thought to giving some leeway to the democrats um to get their part of the budget passed so we could have had a budget quicker but because they don't want to compromise with the other side um and unwilling to compromise with the other side we had to wait another month and a half right and and the way this might look nationally is talking about elections and campaigns and what does compromise look like? Well, ultimately you are going to co-sponsor a bill with a member of the other party. And then there are people who are running against you are going to run attack ads that say you're soft on X, Y, and Z, or you're not hard enough on your stances, which really matter to your base. And they might try to use your putting aside party and choosing country over party as a weakness to try to get themselves elected instead of you. So, you know, compromise has almost become a bad word in Washington, D.C., and oftentimes is really unfortunate because in a good compromise, no one gets exactly what they want, but everyone walks away at least with some little level of victory uh, and, and some level of defeat, I guess it's fair to say. But when you compromise, things do happen, things get done. And this idea of being so polarized to the point where you won't even look at or consider the viewpoints of another side or the policies or agenda of the other side, it gets to this point where it's my way or the highway. And you basically have to have a supermajority of representation to push through your, your agenda. Right. Back to the idea of if I can't get it passed, then nothing's going to happen. We're not going to deal with it. And it goes back to Washington's ideas as well as if you're not going to compromise, it's, again, the will of the party is more important than the people that they are supporting. Yeah, and so Washington is a great person to bring up because I think that a lot of people see politics today as a dumpster fire. But, like, how did we get here? How did we get to this point? And I think it's fair as as we're kind of leaving this episode to kind of look back at some of the historical roots of the two-party system and have they, how they kind of materialized over time. How did we get to the point of the modern Democratic and Republican parties? It's important to keep in mind that political parties are not part of our framework of government. They're not part of the plan. They're not part of the Constitution. Uh, they just sort of happened. Yeah, and we talk about, um, and it's important to note that historically speaking, the same divisive issue that created the original parties kind of are still the basis of the party system today. Uh, the big argument uh, right at the creation of the Constitution was, should the government have a lot of power or should the federal government be very limited? When Washington first assembles his cabinet, you know, he's putting together a team of advisors that are going to be able to give him advice on different things regarding issues in the United States, you know, trying to get the country off the ground. 
But even within his own cabinet, certain people were kind of starting to go after each other and argue different ideologies, the same ideologies that Hertzler was alluding to, you know, these kind of like beginning of states' rights versus new federal government ideas. And two of the main culprits of this were Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton. Alexander Hamilton was a federalist, and Hamilton came at this from the perspective of essentially saying, look, we need to make this government stronger. The Articles of Confederation didn't work. We have a worthy president here with George Washington. The federal government needs to be able to have power so that we can be successful as a country. So his ideas included things like creating a national bank that would take on war debt, be able to federalize that, nationalize that war debt so it could be paid off by the government rather than being on the plans of certain states. And Jefferson approached it for more of a, well, states' rights thing. If your states took on lots of debt during the war, that's not our fault. Uh, Jefferson came at it from that perspective of kind of states should have more power, individual rights, kind of those early anti-federalist type arguments. Right. And some of the things that people didn't like about you know, the Federalists, too, was the fact that even though they wanted a, a stronger central government with more people involved, Hamilton really believed in a in an elite class that was running said government. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the educated are going to run things. Um, the people who own land, the people who have a stake in this country are the ones that's going to control it and not Joe Schmo, who, you know, is just here. Um, right. And Je people like Jefferson's government because there was more freedoms for the individual. Depending on who you yeah, are. Yeah, depending on who you are. And more participation for individuals in their local state governments. Right. And and so these two arguments that really sort of originated from the original Federalist, Anti-Federalist type thing become the two parties. The party that's established kind of under the Hamilton brand of things and, you know, Washington to a degree, but especially John Adams by the second president, they're the Federalists. They're the ones who kind of prefer this big government, strong government, maybe a little bit more elite type government that Hertzler is kind of referring to there, uh, kind of that, that snobbiness that Jefferson oftentimes pointed out in Hamilton's party. Uh, and, and Thomas Jefferson forms what we call the Democratic Republicans. Anyone who's a Hamilton fan knows the line very well. But um, yeah, that was the big difference. And you can really trace this ideology, uh, the separation between the two, the role of government. I mean, these are still very much issues that you can see traced all the way to where we are now in our country. So ultimately, the Federalist government doesn't last very long. You know, you have Washington's presidency, not that he loved political parties at all, but he probably you know, was split between the two camps, but might have fallen a little bit more in line with Federalists, uh, though he never would have labeled himself in any sort of way. John Adams takes on much more of that mantle of kind of the Federalists because John Adams was maybe much more of an example of the type of party that Hamilton kind of favored. Uh, Hamilton's killed in the duel with Burr, so he never really gets to like take part in political office beyond that. And with Hamilton, essentially the Federalist party sort of dies. And, and since the Federalists, you know, like Great Britain so much, they, they actually, you know, want to ally with Great Britain and, and, and use them to build their economic standing. That's one of the reasons they die off is they don't like the war in, of 1812. Um, they don't like the fight that we're fighting them ag ag again. So 
leads to the downfall a little bit. Right. I mean, if, if, if there was any type of like federalist support left to the, you know, by the war of 1812, it's, it's, it's over. Um, and so the democratic Republicans really kind of enjoy a lot of early success, partially bolstered by the fact that many of the democratic Republicans are Southerners. And so they're supported by that three fifths compromise, which give the Southern vote much more of a representation, but beside the point, you know, we sort of have an evolved party system by 1828, not too long in the future. Uh, things kind of shift a little bit. The Democratic Republicans, for all intents and purposes, changed their name to the Democrats. During the era of Jackson, this is where the, the Democratic Party, and this is at least traced the same Democratic Party that we have today, starts during Jackson. But the Democrats back then are very different from the Democrats now. They're still kind of that states' rights government, tend to be uh, more in the South, in the West, kind of the working class farmers uh, and planters. And especially in this time in the 1820s, 1830s, uh, important to mention uh, pro-slavery and laissez-faire from an economic standpoint. Again, maybe very different in certain respects to what you might expect from the Democratic Party today. Uh, but that was the Democratic Party of the 1820s, 30s, 40s, 50s. Yeah, and it's important to remember that that working class idea with the Democratic Party because a lot of your candidates through the 1828 through on, they they kind of run themselves as the average American. Andrew Jackson plays this, I'm I'm an everyman. Like, like I I was once one of you working on a farm in Tennessee um and and worked my way up. So so you should vote for me because I've been there. I, I've been in your shoes. So they kind of play this role as the the working class heroes in, in, in government. They get a lot of votes and, and win a lot of elections because of it. And also during Jackson's tenure, it's important to note that the federal requirements for voting shift a little bit too to become more open to more people. Yeah. You know, the thing that we talked about with Hamilton wanting an elite government where you have the educated landowners voting and decide making decisions. Um, in the 1820s, they're actually going to get rid of that requirement to own land. So the number of people who can vote is going to double in America because now you have basically all white men. Um, still pretty limited, still pretty limited, but still limited, but, but white men, regardless of if you own land or not, you get to vote in elections. And now you have to play to those, those people's understanding as well. Um, because one, they're not the highly educated. So, so they're not caring about politics as much as your, you know, highly educated landowner, but, but you still have to play to their um, opinions when you're trying to get votes. And that's exactly what Andrew Jackson does. Absolutely. There's kind of this myth of Jackson and I'm, I'm sure there's maybe some truth to it, but maybe it's exaggerated of like the white house gates were open and people would always come and kind of visit around and uh, just kind of hanging around. Like you just imagine sort of like a random, like party of get togethers, like, <laughs> um, I don't know, like random rednecks and stuff kind of wandering around in the white house and things like that. But um, you know, it, 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 there is, I guess, even with how, mythical that kind of story might be it does play to the idea that politics is more accessible to more people during jackson and jackson does get a lot of negative press and all of that press is 100 percent fair but at least during the tenure in which he's president the idea of dropping the maybe the elite democracy portion of this where you have to be a landowner 
did open up democracy and politics to a lot more people. And it's not just him. William Henry Harrison, the, the president right after him, even though he's there for a month. Right. Um, I don't need a coat. Also, I'm fine. He also played the stereotype of I'm a military man um, who right. came from nothing. And, you know, I know your strife. So if I get elected, I'm going to I'm going to fix the problems for the common man. I think, yeah, the common man presidencies yeah. in, in this time period. Yeah. Uh, but it is important to know that there are even though the Democratic Party is dominating a lot of the scenes there are some other parties in the second party system um you do have a remnant of the federalists um that mm -hmm. try to form up again and this is going to be the national republican slash whig party the whigs the whigs yeah um they get the nickname the whigs basically from the idea of you know british parliament you know they're whigs that they yeah. Would wear. yeah they're the high class society uh most of the people that liked the Whigs party would have been from the North, the educated Northerners. Um, and it's important to know, even though we're calling them the national Republicans, this is not the Republican party right. of today. They but, have a tragic yeah. story with this because Henry Clay is kind of their leader. Um, Henry Clay is a man who runs for president five times cool. and, and never wins. Um, but he is very instrumental in creating economic policy. And that's kind of one of the big issues of the national Republicans is economics through factories um, and a, a more uh, white collar way of making money instead of farming and, and blue collar. Right. You know, if we're talking early 1800s, we're definitely talking about not the earliest level of industry in the U.S., but really when the Industrial Revolution in the United States really is kind of ramped up. Um, so you start to see that the early days of that kind of ramping up of industrialization in the U.S., with the with the Whigs, and there are a couple of other minor parties during this time. Um, th there are several issues that kind of uh, separate them from each other, but one of the big commonalities of the political party system during this time is basically how the parties felt about slavery. A lot of people saw slavery and the issues of slavery as this kind of impending doom that the United States is going to have to deal with at some point, because ultimately, as we remember from our Constitution episode, one of the failings of the constitutional convention is that fact that they just, they didn't really deal with slavery. They didn't really make a definitive stance on it. Yeah, um, they, they, they kind of, they, they punted, they kicked the can down the road. Right. Um, and so all during the 1820s, 30s, 40s, there's this kind of impending, like, you know, people are going to start throwing hands, right? Something's going to happen over this. And oftentimes people were fighting, over issues. If you talk about this a little bit later, but, you know, bleeding Kansas, um, John Brown, you know, issues of slavery were coming up and parties had to adjust to essentially take a firm stance uh, by this time. You know, how do you feel about slavery? Are you going to stand against it or are you going to support it? Yeah. And, and two of the parties that from this era, you know, you have the Liberty Party, which was all about getting rid of slavery in America. Right. And then you have the Free Soil Party, which didn't like slavery, but they knew it was going to be difficult to get rid of. Right. So they just wanted to prevent it from expanding. Um, they just wanted to keep it where it was. Um, mm -hmm. And hopefully that if you don't let it expand, then those It'll states will, yeah, they'll, they'll die off that their, their representation will end and they will be able to get rid of slavery. Right. Yeah. This is during the time where there's rapid expansion of the U S so their whole stance is like, 
as we expand, our goal is just to keep slavery out of the new territories and new states. Um, you know, but again, basically allow it to continue happening where it is, and ultimately it will kind of die off on its own. At least that was their thought. Uh, but as we talk about, especially this kind of abolitionist movement, I think it's really important to kind of use that as our segue into the third party system, Hertzler. Yeah, third party system. You are going to see the emergence of probably one of the most successful minor parties. Um, the first right. successful minor party being the Republican Party. The Republican yeah. Party starts as a minor party. Um, um, they're not in the mainstream. The Democrat party is still probably the most dominant party up into this time. Um, but the Republicans emerge with their, their first presidential election um, and getting the election of Abraham Lincoln and, and it being a success. Right. So this is an 1860 at this point for those keeping count at home. You know, uh, one of the big issues during that period up until now is essentially where are these parties standing on slavery uh, but the Republicans took a very strong stance against it, and it won a lot of support as a result in places like the Northeast or really just kind of most of the northern states across the entire country that had become established because they were free soilers, so to speak, in, in these new places. Uh, but the Republican Party, outside of slavery, also generally was a pro-business type party, uh, good for trade protectionism in the United States, for especially trade with the British, I think, was one of the big standing points for them. The Republican Party of 1860 was kind of elite to a degree with the, the type of support they had. It was really business, upper class, maybe a little bit of middle class as well. But they had a good coalition because of the fact that they had so many abolitionists that supported the Republican Party, that they had people like Frederick Douglass, uh, very supportive and supporting candidates like Lincoln, for example, and people who may not be elites, but at the very least interested in abolition that ultimately supported the Republican Party, too. You had a lot of religious groups that saw the immorality of slavery also a part of the Republicans. But then again, it was also very divisive when it came to the religious groups as well, because, you know, the Democrats being a lot of Southern voting. You know, religion is, is a very center point of of, of that area. So it, it, it that became very divisive as well. And there's also a tear in the Democratic Party during this time, too, effectively, right? Like, um, yeah, that, you had your, that's that's part of basically northern Democrats, southern Democrats, and they deferred on slavery a little bit. But as a result of that, that that really hands Lincoln and the presidency is is a lot of that division that took place between northern and southern Democrats. Yeah, at the Democratic Convention in 1859, you have Stephen Douglas, who was the leader of the Northern Democrats, and then you had the Southern Democrats who didn't even show up. Right. Um, so there was a real split in the Democratic Party that that really um, hurt their chances of winning the election. Right, and and so this is important to point out. You know, with uh, the Civil War takes place almost immediately after Lincoln comes into the White House, or even before, right? Um, but basically, it's going to be 1861 to 1865. Uh, a good portion of the southern states, which were largely Democratic, break away. The Republicans have virtually most control of both chambers of the Congress, and they have the White House. But there's still disagreement within the Republican Party of how aggressive to be, you know, how aggressive anti-slavery are going to be. Like, you have a lot of disagreements 
on the 13th Amendment. The 14th Amendment definitely was a firebrand because that's one of the ones that gave uh, the rights of Basically, citizenship to everyone. Yeah. Equal to Protection Amendment. Very right. important. And then even the 15th Amendment was very controversial. Sure. Um, yeah. yeah. And so in the early 1870s, Hertzler was just kind of alluding to this, like politics becomes open to even more people as uh, black men get the right to vote with the 15th Amendment. So ultimately, we're basically at all men in the United States have the right to vote. And the other big issue that's actually going to hurt the Republicans moving forward, um, mm -hmm. especially after Lincoln's assassination, is after the war ends, how are we going to deal with bringing the country back together? Right. Reconstruction played a big divisive terror in, in the Republican Party even, whereas, you know, Lincoln – before he was assassinated, really wanted to be lenient with the South and like kind of welcome them back to the United States. Whereas the um, the the more aggressive Republicans, they they wanted to punish the South. They wanted to basically strip them of their rights and kind of put them in time out as they come back into the country. They they don't want to just let them back in scot free. Right, and as it was, you know, you we talked about the disagreement in the Republican Party, and you know they are anti-slavery. But as we get into the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s, not that the Republican Party abandons the rights of of black people or anything like that, but there is this kind of feeling that you, you know they've done enough to a certain degree and the priorities of the Republican Party by the 1890s tends to be more like big business stuff. The Democratic Party is still a very solid south. It's still very at this point pro Jim Crow, which is going to strip rights away from African Americans. And that's pretty much what it's going to be like as we get into the 20th century. Yeah, and the the, the feelings of Reconstruction really helped bring on the, the Jim Crow feelings and, and how the South felt betrayed. And then everything's going to lead into that. So as we get into this is this is a new time period in the 20th century, early 20th century up until 1932. The Republicans have are really dominating the federal government. They have several presidents throughout the late latter half of the 1800s into the early 1900s and you start to see the beginning of the progressive movement with two republicans and one democrat actually so you have theodore roosevelt coming to power following an assassination of william mckinley and roosevelt is going to start to do a lot more action with the federal government to take care of individual people's problems. He's responding a lot to what is known as the Gilded Age, where things were relatively good from an economic standpoint, but ultimately like, you know, maybe not so good for the people just to keep it as short as possible. Uh, and ultimately he's going to be one of the first presidents to really step in and use the power of the federal government through antitrust bills, through, um, you know, consumer protection bills uh, to make things better for individual people. And actually, as a result of this, he leaves office after finishing McKinley's term and then a term of his own. He actually runs third party against William Taft in 1912. And yeah, he actually, you know, Taft isn't progressive enough for him. Right. Um, Taft steps in to be the next progressive president, um, but Taft's policies aren't. They're more progressive enough and in helping the people. I mean, he was he was more progressive to help businesses, but not the people. Um, and and he wanted and, and Roosevelt stepped in to stop him. Right. I mean, uh, Taft 
definitely is going to continue a lot of what Roosevelt started, but in a much more moderate way. And Roosevelt is really going to see that they're not, you know, they're not following following through on my plans with the fruition that I would like. And so he does run third party. And this is another successful third party. And we're actually going to talk about it next episode. So I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but you got to got to hate it for Taft a little bit. Uh, maybe I'm saying this as a bigger guy myself, but it's one of those things like Taft is Taft continues a lot of progressive policies. And yeah, he wasn't as progressive as Roosevelt, but like what do kids know about Taft? They're like, oh, he's fat. You know, like it's it's a uh, kind of a rough kind of a rough go historically. He was also Supreme Court justice. Like, right. Like how many he, presidents he, can say they were president and Supreme Court justice? No one. Like no he, one. No one else. lived a successful life. So. Right. And all you remember is he had a big bathtub. Right. Yeah. The Bull Moose Party is the one that Roosevelt forms. And there's this cool story behind it. But we'll we'll wait on that. But as a result of basically running two Republicans against each other, the vote split. And Woodrow Wilson becomes president. He's the first Democrat elected into office for a, a good while in the federal government. He still has broad support in the South. Uh, Woodrow Wilson has the, I guess, um, notoriety of being the first historian president. He was the president of Princeton. Um, but he was also like a, a very racist. Uh, he showed um, birth of a nation in the White House. And Birth of a Nation, for those that don't know, essentially uh, paint the Ku Klux Klan as the good guys. And, you know, he goes, oh, man, such a great story. It's like writing history with lightning, I think, is a quote that he said. Uh, but, you know, Woodrow Wilson continues a lot of the progressive policies, actually, uh, that were started earlier. Again, it's much more moderate than Theodore Roosevelt might have done. But one of the things that I, I I really feel it's more of the things that circumstantially happened under Wilson versus Wilson actively taking part in it is the really Wilson the versus Wilson. Yeah. The, su the suffrage movement. Right. Well, I want to talk really about like with Wilson, you know, he, he is a progress. He like keeps going on with some progressive ideas, which is actually weird because the Democrats are very ha hands off. Yeah. So you kind of start to see a switch over to where, both sides are trying to be progressive because normally the Democrats are like, no, don't get involved. Don't, don't make these regulations right. that are going to hurt big businesses. But the suffrage suffrage movement has been going on since 1860 or even earlier than 1860, 1848 yeah. mm -hmm. um, when you had the Seneca Falls convention. Um, but the suffrage movement or the women's suffrage movement um, trying to get expand voting again, you know, you know, so far we've had, rich white men we've had white all white men now we have african-american men now we're pushing for women as well as well getting the right to vote mm -hmm. um and it's going to play a, a a big role and we're going to get the 19th amendment uh passed um which which does expand that, that voting so now these parties have to start focusing on other issues to to get more opinions out there or, or more ideas out there to to engage new voters as well yeah and that's a really important thing to point out is even though these parties may have some long-standing tradition of things they support the parties do evolve constantly to match the needs of the present day because otherwise they're just an old party that no one cares about because they don't change their opinions or they don't they don't change their views to match you know the new modern age yeah you, you do see 
to a degree, the Democratic Party starting to shift maybe a little bit more socially liberal during this time. The Republican Party has been socially liberal the whole time, comparatively anyway. Uh, its adoption of big business is much more in line with kind of what we would understand to be maybe more modern-day conservative, except for people like Roosevelt and Taft, which were kind of anti-big business, at least anti-monopoly. And so you, you do start to see kind of an evolution of these two parties as we enter the 20th century. And speaking of moving around, we get to the fifth party system now, which really gets going in the 1930s. Right. All right. And the big event that really is is important for the 1930s is the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. And this is where you really start to see the Democratic Party become more of the, the big government party, the government that is going to throw out support and, and, and create these, these plans that, that, that help out society, which before this you would never see. Right. I think this is where you start to see the beginnings of the democratic party as we'd recognize it now. Um, you know, this is, this is Franklin Delano Roosevelt and his kind of brand of the democratic party is very different from what we'd expect before, because again, democratic party, a century before this is essentially entirely in the South. Roosevelt was from New York. Roosevelt, you know, was in a well-to-do family. FDR comes into office with a lot of aggressive plans to take government action to fix the issues that are facing people. Yeah, and his new ideas became known as the New Deal um, to help out what essentially was fixing the problems of the Great Depression. And this is what brings a lot of people into the Democratic Party because he is, one, providing jobs for people. Um, he's creating these the like the the AAA, for example, um, getting people back to work. Yeah, you weren't getting paid for it, but you were for for young men, you were getting a place to stay, um, you were getting food, and you weren't idle. You you were actually performing some kind of task. So Americans felt good about what they were doing. They created the public works program, which gave federal funds to states to to pay people to do different projects build government buildings, build parks. Right. Um, I, th- I want to say the old stadium down in Charlotte is a public works. The the old, uh, where the Panthers played their first season of football was an old public works. Hmm. But I could be wrong, but I know they built some, some stuff like that, but, but you see a lot of like like post, like, post offices, post a lot offices, of post yeah. offices, but, but yeah, people liked the fact that he was helping America get back on his feet. And you you start to see the New Deal coalition forming. Um, people who, you know, white Southerners, for example, voted right. for him because the South was hit hard during the Great Depression. Right. Um, white, white Southerners were generally supportive of the Democratic Party anyway. But especially a lot of the programs that Roosevelt created were signed off by a lot of white Democratic politicians and really did help a lot of people. Like the Tennessee Valley Authority is another good example you know, yeah. they're bringing electricity to Appalachia. Uh, you know, it's crazy to think how 100 years ago, electricity wasn't something that was common. Uh, but, you know, that's one of the big infrastructure type programs that was created. And it really helped people by giving them work, but it also helped people in a practical way like le- electricity. Immigrants in the cities were were very thankful for FDR as well because factories got hit hard um, during the Great Depression. Many people got laid off. Um, you would have the populist farmers in the Midwest 
African Americans. Um, many of the, the 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 people that would vote Republican usually start to shift more to the Democrats because again, the Democrats are doing a lot to help society out. Yeah, for sure. And while we're talking about it, you know, the the, the Republican Party, they're still around. They're still kind of this pro-business, economic, conservative, social conservative group that can kind of be a thorn in the side of Roosevelt, especially if you talk about their placements on the Supreme Court. But ultimately, like a lot of people blame them directly for the Great Depression. And some of the criticism is absolutely fair. But it's one of those things where people are also not ready to hand the Republican Party the keys again. As a result... Roosevelt gets elected four times to presidency, which has never been done before and will never and be done never again. Be done again. Yeah. Again, a lot of people voted for the Democrats because they just didn't want another year of another term of Herbert Hoover. Right. Um, because he did such a horrible job of responding to the problems of the great. Yeah, I mean, I, if you think about the classic at this point in time, the Republican response, it's, it's to be laissez faire. So Herbert Hoover actually acted in the way that, was kind of in line with his ideology. Uh, but a lot of people are like, well, you're not doing anything. You're not taking any action to help us. And the old economic theory of laissez-faire is essentially like things will sort themselves out on their own. But it's hard to say that to a person who's like lost everything. Just give it time, right? Right, yeah. Um, and then you also have the bonus army incident. Um, right. Where people, you know, people were after World War One were promised these bonus checks and they never came. And when the Great Depression hit, they're like, "Well, we we kind of would like our money now." Um, right. And it never came. And they had to send in. They had, yeah. they had to send in the army to break up this just basically this bad look of homeless veterans camped out in Washington D.C. But like, you send in the military to drive them out, and people, it, it's horrible look like yeah. thank thank goodness for their publicity teams that tv and cable wasn't around at the time because like goodness gracious in the internet it would be everywhere but but the the, the fifth party system also extends into the 1950s and 60s and you start to see some more issues pop up that that start swaying voters and that being the civil rights movement and and that's why you start to see the Democratic Party becoming the more the more liberal party, the, the party that is there to advance rights for people um, instead of hindering. Right. And and there are some tears within the Democratic Party, especially socially. I think that is is incredibly important to point out when we get into the civil rights movements uh, in the 1950s. You know, you have people that on the books are Democrats, but they're. They're filibustering bills that Democratic presidents want uh, dealing with civil rights. And the the big definitive shift is going to happen in 1964 and 1965. At this point in time, Lyndon Johnson has become president. And Lyndon Johnson is going to sign two sweeping pieces of civil rights legislation, the first being the Civil Rights Act, which essentially ends Jim Crow effectively um, by saying the federal government's going to come after discriminatory practices, right? Some of those old school practices, um, I guess you could even go back as far as the the Brown versus Board decision in the 1950s. Uh, is yeah, going that's to be 10 years before 10 that. 10 years that, before that. The Civil Rights Act. But, you know, the Civil Rights Act goes farther to really like legalize it because we know the Supreme Court can't actually do anything outside of like hand down the decisions. It's the job of the president and the executive branch to carry out and make sure they're followed. 
Uh, but the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was a huge deal for ending some of the discriminatory programs that had been in place throughout much of the country, but especially the South, you know, since the 1860s and 70s. And the very next year, the Voting Rights Act was passed. That's the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And Hertzler, what did that do? That's going to end a lot of the tactics that the, again, Southern states use to limit African-American voting. So um, if you've been in an American history class, you've heard of, probably have heard these, these tactics to keep people from voting, like the literacy tests and the poll taxes and the grandfather clause. Um, they were just sneaky ways to get around the 15th Amendment, right? Mm-hmm. And they, they, they don't they don't say on paper that black people can't vote. But through practice, they largely target black people. Because if you look at society, the lower income is usually black Southerners. Um, right. Because they're less escaping educated. slavery and they yeah. don't have a lot of opportunities. And this is just, it's, I thought, the, it's stacked against them, right? And, and the grandfather clause is the most devious one of them all. Absolutely. Saying that it's basically a generational thing. It, it, mm-hmm. Saying that if your grandfather couldn't vote, effectively you couldn't vote and it it was carried down so mm-hmm. so you have this whole generation of people it's like oh well since my grandfather was a slave i can't vote well now 20 years later your grandkids can't vote because you couldn't vote as well right. so it was, it was a very devious and you know it was smart but it was very devious at the same time maybe smart in the sense that it was clever it got around the law without specifically yeah, breaking it, the it, law it, it was evil, smart, right? Yeah, uh, and and with that being said, you mentioned the poll tax. The poll tax is actually eliminated with a, a constitutional amendment, not the specifically the Voting Rights Act, but still, it, that all comes in 1964 and 1965. Really important for it, effectively giving black people the right to vote again, because you know black men had been get, granted the right to vote with the Fifteenth Amendment, but largely due to a lot of the the laws that were put in place. They were effectively blocked from voting. So this is a grandiose umbrella statement piece of legislation that is going to eliminate voting barriers for effectively all people at this point in time. And then this this leads to that switchover that we talked about is, is you know, as the Democratic Party is giving African-Americans their voice in, in government again and giving them um, rights in society you're going to want to keep voting those people into office. Um, right. And this is where you start to see that switch over. Um, and, and, and the Southern the new deal of, Democrats are not as happy about it. Right. Right. And, and, you know, the Democrats now become more of the, like I said, the more of the, the progressive liberal party that is granting people rights and, and protecting people's rights moving forward. And that's what gives them such a big, big coalition of voters moving forward. The Democratic Party actually has a de-alignment. We need to quickly define these terms, but a realignment is where you're going to have a significant change in how the party is put together, what the coalition of the party looks like. So in 1932, with the New Deal, you have a brand new sweeping legislation, new people coming to the party. That would be an example of a realignment, lots of new people joining in. But as we get to the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act, you actually are going to have a de-alignment of the Democratic Party where the party is going to split somewhat. You know, you have civil rights, you have the Vietnam War. The Democratic Party in 1968 actually ends up being in shambles. And the Republican Party once again has an opportunity to sort of step in and establish itself. 
and they're going to do so under Richard Nixon. And Richard Nixon has a very strong social conservative message. He is going to use a lot of dog whistles that are very like basically like coded racial epithets to get Southern Democrats to join the Republican Party. And by 1972, his re-election year, you're going to see the Republican Party start to resemble what we would recognize as the Republican Party today and the Democratic Party recognize basically what it looks like today as well. Which leads us to our sixth system of party systems in America. Um, and this is the one that goes from 1968 to what is today. And a lot of the issues um, that that affect these political parties moving forward, uh, especially the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, is going to be economic policy. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, because, you know, the 60s, 70s, late 60s, early 70s through the 80s, we're going to go through a huge recession, right? Um, America, yeah, American, America economically looks looks really bad going into 1980, and, and you're going to get the election of a lot of people's most favorite president if you did a poll of, you know, boomers is, is going to be Ronald Reagan, the actor. The actor? <laughs> And and what was what was his big economic push, Crowder? You lived in the eighties. I I was I was alive during the Reagan administration. That is true. Um, the last week of it, but it still counts. <laughs> that gives me pure eighties credence. So, with that being said, if you were George H. W. Bush running against Reagan, you would call this voodoo economics. We know it more as supply side economics, uh, or where, trickle down or, economics. Or trickle down economics where essentially, uh, we've talked about this in previous episodes, so I don't want to hit on it too much, but essentially the goal of trickle-down economics is that you're going to give tax breaks and incentives to big businesses and wealthy individuals in the idea that they're going to be the job creators. Since you have all this new money, you're going to open new businesses, you're going to pay your workers more, and that's going to be beneficial for everybody, but you start at the top, and that money is going to trickle down. And then in the Democratic Party, uh, and this has been in place really since the 1930s, this kind of idea of uh, Keynesian economics. And that's spending money to, to help people out, you know. Um, it's okay to spend money on a deficit as long as it's helping society out in the long run. Um, and it's it's using government funds to provide resources for society. But a lot of people don't like the idea of Keynesian economics because it it's an idea that has scared them. And, and it had a, another name, you know, early 1920s, 30s, and that's socialism. Um, a lot of people like to to so to to look at Keynesian Keynesian economics and and compare those two. The the big economic difference is essentially where is the money going to start? You know, mm -hmm. are you going to put the money in the hands of wealthy individuals hoping that they do stuff because again the criticism is of that like ultimately wealthy people more often than not kind of hang on to the money. That's the criticism anyway. Uh they're not really going to like spread that money out so it kind of just stays at the top. Uh but those the that have money want to hold on to it. Right. But the criticism of, of Keynesian economics, as you mentioned, is essentially like it's just the government spending money on stuff over and over and over again. Uh, but, you know, the idea of Keynesian economics with, without the criticism is if you give the middle class money uh, or opportunities or programs, 
they're going to be better off and they're going to spend their money, which ultimately creates a better economy. It just, again, the big difference between the two is where's the money going to start? Is it going to start with the rich or is it going to start kind of with the government giving money to the middle? And in the flip side with that, the argument coming from the Republicans or, 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 you know, if we give people money, they're just not going to want to work. Right. We're right. not, we're not doing anything productive for society. Um, if we're providing a way of life for people. So it kind of defeats the purpose of, you know, giving it to the businessmen as well, because, you know, people aren't going to want to work for a living. Mm -hmm. And one of the other just really important issues aside from economics tends to be, um, you know, the abortion question. I think that's one of the really big areas where these parties have become more differentiated over the years, especially as we get into the 21st century where we are now, you know, we're talking about Republicans very firmly pro-life, uh, Democrats very pro-choice. Um, we've talked about all this in a previous episode, so I don't want to hit it too hard, uh, but there are very decisive and divisive issues that separate the parties, you know, as we get into the 1980s, 90s, 2000s to where we are today. Um, I would also like to point out that foreign policy is a big one, sure. especially after September 11th, because mm -hmm. we're all, I, I want, I'm not going to say all, but a good majority of Americans are like, yeah, we need to defend America and, 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 you know, punish the person who, you know, committed these acts. But then where do we draw the line of stopping where we're going in the middle East or, or, you know, how, how, once you 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 capture Osama bin Laden, you know how much further you you willing to go. Um, I think that was a big divisive issue moving um, through, especially the late 2010s. Yeah, sure. I mean, I'd argue with like use of the military. You have Reagan going and invading Grenada and something like that. It was like a like five hour war, you know. But uh, it it's basically like your willingness to use the military to kind of. Uh, bolster America's standing abroad almost like uh, as a way of just if you appear very strong people aren't going to mess with you uh, and I think that's something that's commonly been used in Republican presidencies back since Teddy Roosevelt for sure so as we get into the political parties today there are probably people out there maybe we are those people are we in a new age of American politics well I do really much see in the future some realignment or dealignment or big splits. Right. It, you know, you know, we talk about it all the time, like, you know, with the polarization, like parties are becoming less and less moderate sure. more and more extreme. Um, I could foresee us adding a third party, a more moderate party at yeah. some point. You think we have a future away from the two-party system? I would like to see us move away from the two-party system. I think right. it would be better politically. I feel like realistically, the two parties that we have might be as many as, you know, maybe even more than this, but at least four parties realistically. Because I think that what you were talking about, you have more conservative Republicans you have more moderate Republicans and then you have more moderate Democrats and more liberal Democrats. Uh, and I think that to the base of both parties right now, 
I think there's a lot more excitement at kind of the extreme ends of, of both parties. Right. I think there's a lot more enthusiasm uh, for more extreme ideologies, but I also think for a, maybe a very silent majority of Americans, I think a lot of people just want some level of moderation. You know, they, they don't love the extreme of either party, but the problem is both parties are moving away from each other. So, you know, uh, will we have a third party or, or, or a multi-party system? It's, it's hard to know. Well, I think it'll start out with, I, if you're going to split into moderates, I feel like to be successful, the moderates of both would have to really yeah. work together. Yeah. Which is why I think three parties really, and then you might see splinter groups off or, 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 you know, coalitions inside that, but they have to work together to really achieve something over the other two. You know, I, I think that's, that's where we are. I mean, the the message I mentioned earlier is parties are always evolving. You know, in this age of the internet, in this age post 9-11, in this age of, of the post uh, maybe the 2016 and the 2020 elections, you know, maybe we are in a new era and it just, we're too newly into it to be able to define like exactly what it is. But it does feel like politics, as usual, is is entirely different today than it might have been even twenty or thirty years ago. Ten years ago. Oh man, we're getting old, Hertzler. Right. To all of our students who were born in the the early twenty first century, we sincerely don't like that you mentioned the late nineteen hundreds. Right. Please do not refer to it as the late nineteen hundreds. Right. Uh, okay. Calling us old as well. Yeah. <laughs> well, this was a long episode, but I think we have a lot of good information in here. Um, right. So for those of you that have made it this far, thank you. Right. And we'll see you next time. Yeah. Our next episode is going to be all about third parties. So if you want to listen to us talk more about parties, you're, you're tired of these two parties. We got a show for you. Hey, you know what the best part about third parties is? Sometimes we get to they talk can, about Gary Johnson, right? And sometimes they can get really wild. <laughs> All right, guys, have a great one. Take care.